So Mark chapter 14, verse 53 is where we'll begin. So with your Bible open, something to write on and something to write with, you are going to be in good shape today. Uh, the title of my sermon is God in the Dock. It's not original. I stole it. Uh, God in the Dock is the title of a collection of theology essays by C.S. Lewis. It covers a broad spectrum of information. Now, as a good New Englander, when you see the phrase God in the Dock, your first thought is, okay, Jesus is at the marina, but that's not the kind of dock that Lewis had in mind. Remember, C.S. Lewis was British. And so what he called a dock, we call a witness stand. When you say God is in the dock, what you're saying is that Jesus is on trial. God is in the dock. Man is on the bench. Jesus is the accused. Man is the judge. This is sadly an accurate description of how many people today relate to Jesus. Many people have Jesus on trial in their minds as they begin to try to process things in their life and things in our world. We put Jesus on trial. Now, you might be at any number of places along the line or the spectrum of that trial. For example, if this is describing you, you might be at the very beginning just announcing charges against Jesus. Jesus, you have not been fair. Uh, you have given me a hard life. You have deprived me of good things. You could be a little farther in the process with Jesus on trial than that. You might be past the charges, and now you are arguing your case. Jesus, the evidence against you is overwhelming. War, disease, famine, drought, funerals. How do you answer for these things, Jesus? Still others have gone past that point as well and have already announced their verdicts. Jesus, I find you guilty of being an imposter, a liar, the invention of power brokers. You're no God. You're a pitiful myth. I'll get on with my life now. Thank you very much. Is there any chance that describes your relationship to Jesus today? Now, to be sure, people who have Jesus on trial certainly exist outside of the Christian faith. They have an idea of Jesus, and they prosecute that idea of Jesus. But it's also people within the covenant community, people within the family of faith, who also face seasons of life, crushing difficulties, and in those moments, we would put Jesus on trial. And that could be you today. You could be a faithful attender here, a regular worshiper, but still you know that inwardly your heart is hard and cold and you are angry towards Jesus. Well, many people, many people here today have taken a different position. Rather than accusing Jesus, they accuse themselves. They find themselves rightfully guilty and have found pardon for that guilt in Jesus. And you know, that could be you today. You see, Jesus is not only on trial in your mind, he's also on trial in our text. And today we're going to read and study this scene where Jesus is accused and condemned by religious authorities. 
And at the end of our study this morning, you're going to have to draw a conclusion. You'll have two options. Those options are this. One option is to say, Jesus is guilty. The other option is to say, I'm guilty. If we study this passage right, it could turn doubters into believers, prosecutors into praisers, or it could equip those who are in conversation with doubters today. So if you're going to accuse Jesus, if you're going to put him on trial, you need a solid case. I want to help you form your case today. I want to share with you from Mark chapter 14, three things that accusers of Jesus get wrong. Here's the setting for the passage we're going to read. We are just mere hours from the crucifixion of Jesus here in Mark 14, 53. Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested by religious authorities. And once he's arrested, all of his disciples flee into the night out of fear for their own lives. After being arrested, Jesus is brought before uh, the Jewish Supreme Court. It's a group called the Sanhedrin. And our events unfold in the middle of the night with Jesus in the midst of this council. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. It's a very dark scene. It's only going to get darker as we walk through this passage headed towards Easter. Uh, What you need to know just to put your brain in the right context of the story is that Jesus is going to go through two different trials before being put to death. The first trial is what we've just read. This is a religious trial in front of religious authorities. And those religious authorities already have a sentence in mind. And in fact, readers of Mark, ever since Mark chapter 3, have known that these religious authorities have wanted to put Jesus to death. 
So they already have him condemned in their minds. This is just a sham court to try and drum up charges against him. Here's the problem. The religious court does not have the authority under the Roman government to implement the death penalty. They can't execute Jesus. So he has a religious trial. The goal is to find charges that they can take to the Roman governor so that the Roman government can implement the death penalty. Two different trials. We've just sat through his religious trial. In two weeks, we will see his civil trial in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. The Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, is made up of 71 total people. In this scene, Jesus is surrounded by accusers. And in the midst of these accusers, I want to show you three things that these accusers get wrong then and get wrong today. So if you're taking notes, number one, accusers of Jesus get their conclusions wrong. First thing accusers of Jesus get wrong are their conclusions about him. So Mark puts us right in the middle of the action with Jesus. The scene opens with Peter nearby warming himself at the fire. And next week we will unpack Peter and all of his denials about Jesus Uh, But starting in verse 55, it describes the completely ridiculous nature of this religious trial. Look at verse 55 with me. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. They're looking for reasons to condemn him. They can't find any. They call in all these witnesses. None of their stories match up. They have some eyewitnesses here that say, well, we heard him say these things, but they misquote him. And even among them, their stories don't match up. The testimonies don't agree. They don't find anything against him. Everything about this religious trial is horribly wrong. It violates every known rule for these types of situations in the first century. The first century Jewish society didn't operate normally by mob rule. There was order and instruction. And so in cases like this, there were specific laws that had to be followed. For example, according to religious tradition, capital cases could not be tried at night. Got that one wrong. Uh, While a verdict of acquittal could be reached on the day of the trial, a conviction had to wait until the next day. We got that one wrong. No trials could be held on the eve of the Sabbath or during festivals. What's Passover season? We've got that one wrong. A second hearing was necessary for a death sentence. There's no second religious hearing for Jesus. We've got that wrong. Witnesses were to be admonished to speak the truth, and contradictory evidence had to be discounted. That didn't happen. A charge of blasphemy could be made only if the defendant had pronounced the divine name. That did not happen, yet Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And then, finally, trials were to be held in one of three courts in Jerusalem, and the residence of the high priest was not an acceptable location for these types of cases. So there's no justice in these accusations against Jesus. There's no consistency, no truth, uh, only lies. And those types of accusations against Jesus continue even today. They didn't just exist in this one pocket of time in the first century. The difference today is that these charges are leveled at Jesus largely through his church. What do those accusations sound like? Well, there's any number of things we might put on the table. Here's a few of the more popular accusations against Jesus in popular culture. 
One, Jesus is homophobic because Scripture identifies homosexuality as sin. Jesus is transphobic because Scripture clearly shows that a person's birth sex and their gender identity are the same. Jesus is arrogant because he teaches that he is the only way to the Father. Every other world religion is idolatry. Jesus is hateful because Scripture teaches that marriage is created by God for man and woman for life. Those are just a few. Now, accusations against Jesus are nothing new. And the modern versions of accusations against Jesus are not any more threatening than any other accusations have been against Jesus throughout the history of the church. Who are the kinds of people who make these accusations towards Jesus? We can be sure that the people who level these accusations are moral, even religious. They may not be religious the way Christians are, in terms of the practice of our faith, but certainly they belong to a cult of popular opinion. Their opposition to Jesus is a moral opposition in their eyes. That morality is not rooted in the Bible, but it's rooted in contemporary voices. And so these moral people who accuse Jesus are just like the people who accuse Jesus in Mark chapter 14. One writer described it this way, it's not irreligion that puts Jesus on the cross, it's religion. It's not the beasts that destroy him, but the best. And so it is today, modern voices that accuse Jesus are voices that speak from a semblance of their own morality. Now you've got to be so careful if you're going to allow your conclusions about Jesus to come from popular opinion rather than God's word. The loud voices of society can have an appearance of compassion, to be sure. But if you cling to those popular opinions, they will destroy you. I read a story last September about a family in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that had just moved into a new house. Uh, There was a thunderstorm. They lost power, but they remembered that the previous owners had left some candles in the basement of the house. And so the wife and mother of two little kids went to the basement and she lit one of the candles not knowing that it was a quarter stick of dynamite. And the stick exploded and she suffered severe injuries to her hand and to her face. The world's collective voice against Jesus might seem like a light in the dark but it's destruction for everyone who clings to it. There's a truth that is greater than the world's conclusions. Here's the good news. Jesus redeems people from all walks of life. He rescues those who are broken in their homosexuality and those who are broken in their heterosexuality. And he saves those who live with gender dysphoria. He saves all those who turn to him in faith. And here's how much Jesus loves us. He loves us enough to save us out of all of our hellish ways of living. It is not love to say, go and sin more. 
It is love to suffer the penalty of sin and to set us free to live in his righteousness. So the first thing accusers of Jesus get wrong is they get their conclusions wrong about Jesus. Here's the second thing accusers of Jesus get wrong. Accusers of Jesus get his identity wrong. They don't even know who they're talking to. They don't even know who they have on trial. That's true in Mark chapter 14. Can you imagine how insane and chaotic the scene around Jesus had to be? There are no credible witnesses, no credible accusations, lie after lie, um, contradiction after contradiction. Finally, the high priest has had enough. The big boss, he's a guy named Caiaphas, and he is a pig of a human being. Caiaphas takes things under his own control. And in verse 60, he asks Jesus if he'll answer the accusations against him. What accusations? There's been nothing credible leveled against Jesus. Jesus remains silent. But then in verse 61, Caiaphas asks a question of Jesus that gets a response from him. What does he ask? Look at it with me. Verse 61, are you the Christ the Son of the Blessed One. Now, why does he say Blessed One? Your Bible might just say the Blessed. Uh, Why does he say that instead of saying God? Remember, in Jewish tradition, they're forbidden from speaking the divine name. Uh, And so in, in order to talk about Yahweh without saying Yahweh, they use some sort of shorthand, the Blessed One. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Verse 62, Jesus answers, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. Why does the high priest lose his mind at Jesus' answer? Well, Jesus' first answer is simple and direct. Are you the Christ? I am. Simple, direct, straightforward. But his second answer is defiant. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's Jesus talking about? Let's unpack it. Jesus' answer to the high priest comes from two very important Old Testament passages. The first comes from Psalm 110, verse 1, when Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. That line, sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, comes directly from Psalm 110, verse 1. That might sound familiar to you uh, because back around Thanksgiving, we were in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, where Jesus quotes this very verse to a group of religious leaders who hate his guts. This is not the first time Jesus has pulled out this passage from Psalm 110. When Jesus quoted that verse to those religious opponents of his, He showed that the Messiah has to be more than just the son of David. The verse, Psalm 110, verse 1 says this. The Lord, David speaking, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Popular opinion said David's just talking about his son Solomon, but Jesus and Paul, the writer of Hebrews and others say, no, David is referring to the Messiah, the great David to come, the king above all kings. When Jesus quotes the line, that's what he's referring to. 
It's the most frequently cited Old Testament text in the New Testament because it highlights the vindication of the Messiah after his suffering. It's a big deal. To sit at the right hand of God was to sit in the position of greatest influence and prestige and authority. That's the first part of Jesus' answer. You'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. The rest of the line, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. There we see one like a Son of Man, or one who's in human form, who comes on the clouds of heaven before the Ancient of Days, that's God himself, and is given glory, dominion, and an everlasting kingdom. So this passage also ought to be familiar to readers of Mark because Jesus quotes it uh, one time in chapter 13 when he talks about his second coming. All men will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory. He also quotes it, uh, or references the title Son of Man of himself in chapter 8. So this was a familiar passage in Jesus speaking and teaching. When Jesus quoted the line here, he's referring to his second coming. That's that's what we're focusing on in this moment. So let's unpack it. Let's piece it all together. Here's what Jesus has said to the high priest. He has first ripped the veil off of his identity. Remember early in Mark, Jesus practiced this thing called the messianic secret. He told people, don't say who I am. Well, that's no more. His identity is in full view. Are you the Christ? I am. The veil of his identity has been ripped off. What's more, Jesus has told Caiaphas this. He will be vindicated in the immediate future when he ascends to sit at the right hand of God. And his ultimate vindication will occur in the future when he returns in glory to judge and to save. And at that time, those who are present Standing in judgment over Jesus would face his very judgment. So the high priest loses his mind for two reasons. One, because Jesus identifies himself as the Christ. Second, because Jesus articulates a very different understanding of the Christ than the people around him held. In short, they saw the Christ, the Messiah, as this military-slash-religious-slash-political leader who would kick Roman tail and return Israel to the status of global power once again. And Jesus doesn't fit any of those categories. What Jesus does in this one line is show them, you think too little of the Messiah. In fact, the Messiah is God in the flesh, the one that you have on trial now. All glory and dominion and authority and power are mine. You haven't understood the Messiah at all. And that's why Caiaphas goes apoplectic. Because Jesus has shown him, you've got the identity of the Messiah all wrong. Now, Jesus' accusers got his identity wrong on that day. They get it wrong on this day also. And when people get Jesus' identity wrong... Always err on the side of diminishing him. No one gets Jesus wrong by thinking too high of him. The religious leaders around Jesus saw a defiant peasant. It was bad enough that Jesus had identified himself as the Christ. But then to raise the definition to the biblical standard was more than those around him could handle on that day. And that's the way it is on this day. When popular voices say things like this, Well, Jesus doesn't judge. 
and Jesus doesn't change you, and Jesus affirms your life choices, what they're saying is they are lowering Jesus to our popular standard. When the Jesus of the Bible isn't the Jesus you want, you'll make one in your own image. And you may find comfort in a face that looks like yours for a moment, but that's not Jesus. And you can't rescue you. That version of Jesus is going to fail. The truth is, Jesus is so much more than we've ever imagined. So much higher, greater, powerful, beautiful, solid than we have ever imagined. Thinking of Jesus in this way reminds me of a story I read last month about a family in Cincinnati who built a snowman. They got really good snow, and this family built a nine-foot-tall snowman, massive. And the owner of the house uh, in the story is a guy named Cody Lutz. And uh, after they built the snowman over the weekend, he went to work Monday morning. When he came home on Monday night, he saw tire tracks in his yard leading up to the snowman. Someone had clearly ran their vehicle into the snowman. And when Cody saw this, he began to laugh because he knew the snowman had been built on top of a tree stump. (laughs) You can see the tire tracks. You can see the imprint of the truck (laughs) in the snow. And the dark edges on the sides are the tree stump. There was no way that snowman was coming down. Accusers of Jesus always get his identity wrong by thinking less of him, but he is solid. He's as solid as the eternal God who made all of this, as solid as the God who will one day return to judge and save. Now, Jesus' words to the high priest are not words of condemnation. They are words of warning. And when Jesus gives a warning, there's always grace in that warning. You see, not every member of the Sanhedrin turned against Jesus on this day. Did you know that? There's at least two, at least two whose names we know who at the least seem to come Jesus' way. Their names are Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. There's grace in the warning. And so if you are one accusing Jesus... Will you hear the grace in his warning today? Will you follow the examples of people like Nicodemus and Joseph and leave behind those voices who diminish Jesus and instead embrace him as your Savior? It can be hard to leave the crowd to follow Jesus. But the question you have to answer is this. Who is your judge If you think people are your judge, then you will live your life to please people. But if you think Jesus is your judge, you will live your life to please him. Accusers of Jesus get his identity wrong. He's so much more than they could ever imagine. Third and final thing accusers of Jesus get wrong, they get his guilt wrong. Accusers of Jesus get his guilt wrong. Look at verse 64, Caiaphas loses his mind. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. They all agree that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. They condemn him to death, spit on him, beat him, mock him. There are some really sad ironies in this story. One is that Jesus, who's the judge of all men, is being judged by men. Two, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, while it's the Sanhedrin in total who's guilty of blasphemy. Three, the Sanhedrin condemns Jesus, while one day he will condemn them unless they repent and follow him. Is Jesus guilty of blasphemy in this story? No, he isn't. But in his innocence, he doesn't break out of Caiaphas's house, put down his accusers, escape to safety. No, Jesus continues on and goes to the cross. The events of the cross are in full swing here at the end of this story. In just a few hours, Jesus is going to be nailed to a beam of wood and hung in the air and die. And we might look at that and call this an injustice because Jesus was killed, although he was innocent. But there's more to this story. You see, although Jesus was innocent in Caiaphas's court and innocent in Pilate's court, he offered himself as guilty in God's court. Though Jesus was innocent, he was held accountable for your sin. So he was guilty. He was guilty of our blasphemy, our lies, our rejection of God, our pride, all of our sin. He died on the cross, was laid in a tomb, three days later rose from the dead. So your sin is covered. Your punishment is gone when you turn your life to Jesus and trust him. One of the biggest hurdles you're going to face if you've got Jesus on trial, you put him on trial from a position of your presumed innocence and his presumed guilt. It's going to be hard for you to Embrace Jesus for who he is if you don't understand that you are a sinner. You are indeed guilty. And that's the problem C.S. Lewis found in his audience, and that's why he wrote an essay called God in the Dock. He found that the people he spoke to about Jesus had no concept of their own sin, and he described the problem in this way. I want you to hear it in Lewis's words. He said, The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. We have to convince our people of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. Look, if you're not convinced of your sin, the Christian message is not good news. It is blasphemy against a popular conscience. But if you'll recognize the truth, that you are a sinner, and Jesus showed his love for you by dying in your place, then all your guilt is gone. You are pardoned in full, and in the place of your sin and condemnation, you are granted righteousness and life in Christ. 
So here in Jesus' first religious trial, we've seen how wrong the accusations are against him. Those who accuse him have wrong conclusions. They have his identity wrong. They get the idea of guilt totally wrong. And the truth about Jesus is so much more wonderful. He took the betrayal, the abandonment, the blasphemy, and the abuse all the way to the cross, and only a God of monumental love would do a thing like that. I read a story a couple of years ago about a letter the governor of Oregon received from a fourth grader named Samuel. Here's what Samuel wrote. He wrote, Dear Governor Brown, my class visited the Capitol on April 19th. While we were there, I took a hazelnut and pen from the Capitol building. These things were not mine, and it was wrong for me to take them. I'm very sorry. I hope you and the people of Oregon can forgive me. (laughs) Sincerely, Samuel. P.S. Here is the pen I want to return and one dollar to replace the hazelnut. Well, the governor replied in a postcard as well as a paragraph online. And online, she wrote this. She wrote, Samuel, in exchange for your apology, debt repayment, and the return of the pen you lifted, I formally, formally pardon you from further penalty. I hope the pen coming your way, she sent him a pen in return. I hope the pen coming your way will be an adequate memento of your visit to the capital. Come back soon. It's a bit of a silly story. Samuel was guilty of the smallest of offenses, but you can feel how much it weighed on him in his letter. Still, though he had erred a little, the governor had the ability in a grand amount to pardon Samuel far above and beyond his tiny offense. You and I, were a little like Samuel, a little. Like Samuel, we're guilty. Only ours is no small offense. Our sin against God is a huge offense. But still, Jesus' willingness and ability to pardon is infinitely greater than our sin. But he won't accept our tiny trinkets to try and repay our debt. He paid our debt in full at the cross. When you take Jesus out of the dock and you put him on the cross, your accusations will turn to a claim, your protests to praise of the one who took your guilt and gave you life. Let's pray together. Father God, we find ourselves in this story among the accusers. Our sin is not lesser in degree, is not lesser in its required payment. We are these irrational voices who with our finite perspectives have made wrong conclusions about you. Lord, convince us of this guilt today, not that we would beat ourselves up, but that we would turn to the one who alone can pardon our sin.
thank you for a way that is better than what the world proclaims. A way out of a hellish destiny and hellish living. A way of rescue and new life and forgiveness all paid for by Jesus Christ. So God, I pray this morning for those who came in here with Jesus on trial that they would recognize their own guilt and they would turn to the one who has shown his love like no one else ever has. They will trust in the one who loves them in all their brokenness and all their hurt and all their anger and all their doubt that they would turn to their Savior and Rescuer, Jesus Christ. Let them find their peace and their comfort, their forgiveness in him today. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who might be walking alongside loved ones or friends who would have Jesus on trial. Give them wisdom and endurance and patience. Let them be sly as serpents but harmless as doves. As they stand firm, in the glorious, beautiful, life-giving gospel truth of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our pardon, and thank you for our new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.